hopefully that makes for a more interesting, more exciting intro. <laughs> Musicless to having royalty-free music. Thank you everyone for tuning in to the Historical Thoughts and Interpretations podcast. Uh, my name is, of course, Christian Bassar, and the music you're listening to right now is called Deliberate Thought by Kevin McLeod under a Creative Commons license. So today, finally, it is here. This is the first episode talking about a specific city in the Russians, uh, Russian city history podcast series. I know I've been talking about doing Kazan, Kirov, Moscow, and all these other cities uh, in a podcast series, and so I've been releasing some introductory information, introductory episodes, such as last uh, few weeks ago we talked about Russia's federal system. To give a little bit of context into the cities we'll be looking at, but I haven't actually done a an episode yet on a specific city. So the day is today, and I apologize for the delay. It is much later than I would have hoped, but you know, life goes on, and uh, this podcasting is a hobby as well. So, you know, there are uh, sometimes schedules don't always work out the way we hope, but uh, I do plan to be keeping this up, of course, and we will be releasing these video, these episodes as we go along. So today is the first episode of the about the city of Kazan in the Republic of Tatarstan. So this will just be an intro, and uh, so I'll be talking a little bit about my impressions of the city itself, but also going briefly into the some of the symbols, some of the history of the city as well. And as we we'll go into more detail as we go later on. So again, sit back, relax, and uh, in, enjoy the first episode of Kazan in the Russian City Historical Project. Nowadays, Kazan is the capital of the Republic of Tatarstan, which is in the Volga region of Russia. It was founded in 1005 as a Bulgar fortress, and eventually it became the center for what Kazan is mostly known for, it eventually Kazan became the center of the Kazan Khanate, which lasted from the 15th to the 16th centuries, until Ivan the Terrible of Moscow conquered it in 1552. So, according to Kazan's official website, kzn.ru, the city has a few nicknames. One is it's known as the, quote, third capital of Russia. It is a major city and it's an old city and there are, according to the website there are 29 universities such as Kazan State University the Academy of Sciences Kazan Architecture Industry or, or <laughs> University and others there's also the National Library of Tatarstan which with almost 3 million books there are 34 listed 34 museums and nine theaters in Kazan as well and the city is host to many theatrical and arts festivals. Kazan is also known as a sport capital. There are 15 stadiums here, including arenas for the KHL hockey team Akbars and the Russian Premier Football League team Ruben Kazan. It has been host to a number of international sporting events, such as six matches of the 2018 FIFA World Cup of Soccer. So the World Cup actually brought in about 3 million tourists 
to Kazan in 2018. This is huge for a city that's whose normal population is 1.1 million. And also, there's the international capital of the Tatar people. This is a third nickname according to Kazan's official website. And again, the, the, the Kazan Khanate was centered around the city until 1552. And there are Tatars elsewhere in Russia, such as the neighboring Bashkir Republic. Though Bashkortostan is technically an area for the Bashkir people, another Muslim Turkic ethnic group, there's a significant Tatar minority. And Volga and the Siberia regions are also major areas for Tatars in modern Russia. And there are Tatars elsewhere uh, as well, such as in the, in the Crimean Peninsula as well. But Kazan is sometimes promoted as an international capital of the Tatar people. So what about Kazan's symbols? So one of them is actually there's a clue in the word Kazan. So there's the, the Russian word Kazan, which also means cauldron or boiling pot. And this comes from the Tatar word as well for it. But notice how in the city name, and I, <laughs> I've been learning Russian for six years, but sometimes I don't quite uh, soften words, uh, soften letters as much as I should. But anyway, the the name for the city, Kazan, Kazan. Notice how there's a little bit of a softening at the very end, but the word Kazan without the softening is cauldron. So you have Kazan which is the, the city, Kazan, which is the cauldron. So this is, this is, I found was very interesting. And actually there's a legend that the city was founded where a cauldron of water would boil without a fire lit underneath it. So Kazan, right? This is one of the, uh, one of the sources of that, of that name or one of the ideas connected with it. And uh, number two, number two symbol, there is the dragon Zelant. So this is a very old symbol, and this is from the Tatar word Elangilan, Elangilan, or snake. And so there is, here's another legend that uh, a Khan settled where the Kazan Kremlin now stands. There was a lot of beehives and fertile land in the area, but there was a problem. There were lots of snakes. So people went out and killed all the snakes by laying down hay and <laughs> setting it on fire. I love it. Um, Zelant, the snake Tsar, escaped. And he would come around and he would attack people and terrorize them. But then a hero came and killed this uh, Zelant. But also, the Zelant, or the snake Tsar, also lived in a lake after Ivan the Terrible's conquest, protecting the Khan's treasures. So... He, and he becomes a Zelant becomes a guardian of Kazan. He become he's in fact a winged snake dragon from Tatar folklore, and so he represents power, well-being, eternity, and possibility. And this is the official symbol on Kazan's seal or coat of arms. And this is coming from this from the Russian Imperial period. It last this was first used in 1730 until the Soviet period. And then in 2004, it was later revived. And some scholars, such as Tatar historian R. Kamikov and Turkologist Lev Gurlinov, point to multiple influences on Tatar culture and symbolism, and they look at Zelant as an example of this. So, for example, dragons were used as 
as symbols in other nearby cultures close to the Tatars. So Gornilov argues that Turks used dragons as guardian symbols, just like Zilant was. And in Western Hunnic culture, which in turn had some Chinese influence, also had dragon symbolism. And Persia also had winged dragons. And the these this symbolism was also borrowed by the Sarmatians, which were contemporaries of, you know, sort of ancestors of the Tatars as well. So these were some of the interesting, uh, interesting debate, interesting thoughts that went into the origins of Zeland. And we will, um, as far as the Tatar people go, we will talk about the origins of the Tatars in the next episode. There's a lot of different ethnic groups that were in that area and influences and so on. So we'll go a little bit over that in the next episode for the Kazan series. And number three, there is the Kazan cat. So there's a number of legends uh, surrounding the Kazan cat, uh, the third symbol. And so there's one that the cat saved that that the Khan's cat saved him and his family. There were um, there were other other enemies, uh, enemy Turkic uh, tribes that wanted to capture the uh, Khan and his family and give him hand him over to the Russians to curry favor uh, with with the Russians. But the so they wanted to go underneath the the Kremlin at. at in the, in the dead of night and you know get up and and uh, capture them but uh, this cat smelled them and awoke the Khan and the Khan was able to escape to Persia and then the other one and this is a bit more based on fact cats from Kazan were seen as seeing uh, as being ultra really good mousers so in 1745, Peter the Great's daughter, Tsarina Elizabeth, ordered 30 of Kazan's biggest and best cats to be sent to St. Petersburg, the capital of the Russian Empire, to protect the Winter Palace from vermin. And so the Winter Palace was, of course, now it's the Hermitage Museum, but uh, at that time it was the palace. So and descendants of these cats are supposedly still there in modern times. And so now there's April 1st, Day of the Hermitage Cat, with exhibitions and events at the Hermitage Museum in honor of these cats. And so you can see the Kazan cat in, you know, the in Kazan itself. There's a silver-colored monument on Belmont Street, and so you just see this cat just kind of reclining on a on a on a kind of a sofa or couch or chair. And um, and then there's another one where you see this uh, cat standing, and he's uh, wearing a traditional flat top to Tatar hat called a, uh, a tubietica, and he's playing an accordion. <laughs> so it was it was kind of cute actually. So now let's talk about the Republic of Tatarstan, which is Kazan's federal subject, and Kazan is also the capital of. Tatarstan. So while the history of Kazan itself is the focus for the series, I will make detours into events that affect the whole region uh, of Tatarstan and get some insights into the Volga Tatar people in general. Um, so it might be it might help to put things into context as well to get a broader view and then um, uh, so that we can better understand you know Kazan is also affected by by this situation within the region. So, like I say, Kazan is the capital 
of the Tatarstan uh, Republic, and during Soviet times, it was the capital of the Tatar Autonomous Soviet Socialist Republic, or the Tasser. And so, because it is a republic, the Tatarstan has two official languages, Russian and Tatar. And so, going into a little bit of the geography here, it's on the very eastern part of the Eastern European Plain. And that plain is divided by multiple rivers. The Volga, the Kama, the Balaya, the Vietka, and about 500 other tiny, tiny rivers as well, such as the uh, Svyaga River, uh, which, is, which is also close to Kazan. And so, Kazan is, so rivers are a big part of why Kazan is important. And so it is right on the eastern bank of the of Volga. So, and the Volga is, is very, very large. So the, its connection to the Volga allowed Kazan to set up trade routes to, to be part of a trade route to Moscow, St. Petersburg, and also the Baltic countries. And Kazan is also where the Volga meets the Kama River, which goes northeast towards, towards Perm, the, the city of of Perm. And this water transportation was important in medieval as well as modern times, especially after the Volga Don Canal was completed in the 1950s in Volgograd, which is further a bit further to the south. And also a train, so water transportation and combined with the train transportation, this formed a train water transport network that connected through Kazan and other rail rail centers. So Kazan became a vital part of that of that network. So what about Tatarstan's economy? As of 2008, the gross regional product of the Republic was about 930 billion rubles. And as of New Year's Eve 2008, this was about 31 billion US dollars. And this is according to the currency converter site XE.com. So the Russian-based National Agency for Direct Investment reported that this was a, a growth. This this showed a growth of a, of 107.1% uh, from the previous year, as compared to the Russian national growth rate of 105.6% of that time from the previous year. Um, and of course, the 2008 financial crisis. Um, came at that time as well and lots of federal money from Moscow was held, was sent to help prop up the republic's economy especially in the construction sector so you know 930 billion rubles that sounds like a lot but a lot of this money um, was a lot of money was also sent to help prop up the economy as well and when I accessed the uh, Tatarstan's website on June 21st 2019 43.2% of the gross regional product is taken up by industry and 9% of this is construction 6.7% of the 6.5% is by comms by communications and 7.5% from agriculture and then there's a fairly significant amount of of contribution from small and medium businesses as well 25% of which make up 25% of Tatarstan's gross regional product Agriculture is also important to Tatarstan's economy. So there's a, a lot of industry from uh, grain production, uh, horticulture, and raising of animals. And in the north, there's gray so-called podzol soil, uh, which isn't very good for farming. But in the south, 
there is a lot of a black earth, which is very good for agricultural produ production. And it's also a fairly temperate region too. Average temperatures range from minus 14 degrees Celsius all the way up to 19 degrees Celsius. So it's not very cold or, or very warm. It's, it's fairly temperate. So agriculture in Tatastan produces, um, produces crops such as sugar beets, vegetables, and grain. And in 2008, it was the lead, it was Russia's leader in meat and dairy production. And within the Republic itself, agriculture took up or comprised 12.7% of the workforce. And in 2008, agriculture was reported to have brought in 124 billion rubles to the Republic. According to Tatarstan's official website, 2.2% of Russia's farmland is within the Republic and which produces 4.5% of the whole country's agricultural produce. And this is continuing a long line of our long tradition of agriculture being being the region's main industry. It was such in the late imperial period as well. But there are other, other industries such as building, the creation of building materials, chemicals, and light industry. At the end of the Russian Empire, for example, most of, most of the industry in Kazan revolved around uh, soaps and the fur industry. And in the region, there's a lot of different types of animals, such as foxes, hares, and wolves. So that has um, that allowed the fur industry to gain some traction within um, within that area. In the Soviet period, industrialization started in the 1920s, such as um, and this revolved around power engineering, chemistry, and mechanical engineering. And also, just like today, this was another industry that is also very important to Kazan today, is petrochemical and rubber manufacturing, gas, and machinery. And a lot of this, and this industry was developed during the Soviet period. Because after World War II, the Soviet Union became very reliant on synthetic rubber. And petroleum is important in this type of manufacturing, but Soviet industry also used ethylene, which was actually found in potatoes another agricultural product. So as far as oil goes in Tatarstan, and so oil was discovered in the late 1940s in the region, and the oil industry in turn increased the viability of other industries as it was now necessary to develop better, better roads. And in 2008, almost 1 billion tons of oil was estimated to be in the Tatarstan Republic. And today, of course, the petrochemical industry remains important in the Republic of Tatarstan. And connected with it, uh, as of 2009, Tatarstan produced 30% of Russia's total rubber production and 16% of Russia's total production of trucks. And there's also the Gorbanov Aerospace Factory, which builds the Tupolev Tu-214 passenger airplane. So moving from the economy, we'll talk a little bit about Tatarstan's ethnic, Tatarstan and Kazan's ethnic makeup. In 2010, the Republic had a population of just under 4, 4 million people, and 53.2% of these were Tatar, and just under 40% were Russian. Other nationalities with more than 10,000 people included Bashkirs, Ukrainians, Udmurts, and others. 
And the city of Kazan itself has 1.1 million people, which is around the same amount of people that, was, that were there during the Soviet period as well. And the ethnic makeup is, uh, demographic is slightly reversed from the Republic. So there's a slightly larger Russian population in Kazan. So there's 48.6% uh, of the population were Russian and 47.6% were Tatar. So what about the Tatar culture? So the Tatar people are a Turkic ethnic group having is said to have originated around the area around Lake Baikal and then they gradually moved west and had mixed with other other ethnic groups other Turkic groups and had influence from them and and then they also eventually moved west during the Mongol invasions. And so during the Mongol invasion of what is now Russia and Ukraine in the 13th century, uh, they the Mongols came and completely destroyed what was known as Kievan Rus. So Kievan Rus was a medieval, sort of loosely unified medieval medieval state centered around Kiev, the modern capital of Ukraine. So the Mongols came and they absolutely destroyed Kiev, and Kiev's control over Rus was lost. And so then there was a state called the Golden Horde. Uh, eventually the Mongol Empire was divided into other um, subdivisions or successors, if you might say. And the Golden Horde was on the western part of the Mongol Empire. So this Golden Horde part dominated the area of modern western Russia for two centuries. So from the 13th to the 15th centuries. And this period is commonly known as the Tatar Yoke. Uh, the you know the Tatar control over what is now Western Russia, and so the word Tatar came to be associated with the people of the Golden Horde, with with the successors of the Mongols, and so there's there was there's been significant you know you look into the the research and the scholarship on this, and there's you can spend a lot of time looking at uh, Tatar influence on early Russian political systems um, and other ways as well. So, for example, as far as political systems, um, you know, the people have looked back at ta uh, Russia's Tatar or the Tatar influence upon early Russia and kind of showing this, well, this is why Russians are, are commonly have faith in single leaders, lack of democratic tradition, and, and so on. So they're you know, some might debate you on that, but those are some of the things that has been um, said in scholarship as a result of Tatar influence on Russia. And also you sometimes see Tatar language uh, influence the Russian language in the form of bywords. For example, the Russian word dengi for money is said to have been a, a Tatar byword. But there has been reverse influence as well. So the Tatar language used to be written in Arabic-like script, but now it's written in Cyrillic. It doesn't sound anything like Russian, but it has the same basic lettering, uh, lettering system as well. And we gradually moved from that, uh, from that Arabic-style script, and then it was changed to Cyrillic. And another area of Tatar influence on Russian culture is in cuisine. So you will see in Russian cuisine, you will also see uh, Tatar dishes such as chiburiki. And chiburiki is very popular in Russia. You can go to a little uh, 
little little cafe or a little restaurant and you can order some chibarikis. So they're it they seem to be treated like a little bit of a fast food, but they're uh, they're basically a boiled batter, filled batter, filled pockets, kind of like a kind of like a calzone, I suppose. And they are fried in oil and they're filled with the meat and their cheese and and uh, they're they're quite good. If you have a chance to have chibariki, uh, sometimes in uh, Western countries, if you live in uh, Canada or or somewhere else, you might be able to get some chibariki. And these are... Mwah, uh, I recommend it. Let's put it that way. <laughs> so that's originally a Tatar uh, food, but it became part of Russian cuisine. So now what about Tatar religion? So the Tatar people are predominantly Sunni Muslim. And uh, there are a number of other uh, predominantly Muslim ethnic groups in Russia, for example, such as the Bashkirs and the Chechens. But the Tatar Muslims are the largest of Russia's predominantly Muslim groups. Um, I should note as well that there is a group called the Chuvash, and these are Tatars who who went a different way culturally. These were Tatars who had converted to Russian Christianity instead of, um, or Russian Orthodox Christianity instead of Islam. And the conversion of, of the Tatar people to Sunni Islam traditionally happened in the city of Bulgar in 922. And this was during the time of the so-called Volga-Bulgar state, which was kind of a, an early Turkic, uh, Turkic state in the area around what is now Kazan. And so the particularly su the 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 specific uh, religious school that the Tatars follow is the Hanafi school. It's a fairly conservative, uh, fairly conservative religious um, religious school, and and it rejected uh, Jadidism. Uh, and Jadidism, Jadidism is kind of the uh, with the root word of new, and Jadidism is a, an attempts to reform Islam, and it appeared in the late Imperial Russian period around the time around the time of the 1905 um, revolution, and so again there the Tatar Hanafi school is is against reform. It's fairly conservative. And so it's one of its main enemies is, is reform, uh, reformist uh, schools such as Jadidism, but also extremist schools of Islam such as Wahhabism, which is the ideological root of Al Qaeda and ISIS. So it's actually kind of interesting. In the West, we look at re we may look at um, reformist imams, and they kind of want to take a way of changing Islam to make it more more as i understand it make it more fit into the modern world a little bit more and um and so the hanafi school that most tatars are part of they would reject this kind of uh kind of reform so they are conservative they are traditionalist muslims but they will also look at what are sometimes seen as ultra conservative schools of islam such as wahhabism and and associated uh, terrorist groups as well, and the Hanafi school will also reject these because they see them as sort of reformers and and corruptors of of the faith. So it's it's uh, it's kind of interesting. They are against reform, but they're also against extremism, which they see as another form of reform or corruption. 
And Islam is a very important part of Tatar identity. And so, uh, in addition to reformism and, and extremism, there's another problem that Tatar Muslims will, will also see, is the Russianization of Tatar culture. And this is certainly not unique um, among uh, post-Soviet cultures. Um, because Russianization is seen to have occurred over the over the centuries, really. Uh, for example, by the reforming of local languages to be uh, to use Cyrillic alphabet, or the use the um, the priority of Russian of the Russian language being used instead of a local language, um, and certainly local languages were used in the Soviet period, and they still are in modern Russian now. But there's but there's still that idea of our culture being attacked and Russian culture being imposed upon us uh, within um, some uh, some Tatar uh, uh, in the attitudes of some Tatars in some societies, and uh, and this is not unique just to the Tatars. And of course, as with everything else, I hope to be going over these uh, issues more in future episodes in this series. So just to, uh, to kind of wrap up this intro uh, episode, I would like to give my thoughts and impressions of Kazan. So I was there in July 2018, and I was able to watch the World Cup 2018 final between France and Croatia in the fan zone. And and the fan zone was something that that uh, you could do and you could visit in various Russian cities, such as St. Petersburg, Moscow, and um, and Volgograd, and others. And uh, there's these were areas where you could have the big game played on a big screen with big sound and everything like that, and you could buy snacks. It, it was it was really fun, and it was for free too. And um, so I went and watched uh, France and Croatia play in the final in the uh, fan zone in Kazan. So Croatia lost, um, but it was a very good game. And it was a good conclusion to a really fantastic tournament. So that was um, that was one of the highlights of my time in Kazan. Um, and as far as like the, the sites, uh, this game was this fan zone was actually within sight of the Kazan uh, Kremlin, which was the epicenter of the old Kazan Khanate. So I thought the location was great. It was relatively easy to get to as well. I just uh, took a bus and I walked for a good part of it. And um, and so, but uh, you could also see the Kazan Kremlin uh, on the other side. So that, that was really neat. And the Kremlin itself, so again, remember that the, the word Kremlin is, means kind of the old center of, the old government center of the city and the, and the walls. So it doesn't just mean the Kremlin as in the Russian government. So the Kazan Kremlin was built on top of a tiny hill on the banks of the Kazanka River, which goes into the Kazanka River goes into the city. Um, so it's actually there's a few differences between uh, it was quite different from Moscow's Kremlin. So the the one thing white walls, as according to brick uh, as opposed to brick red. Uh, the walls are not also not very high, about maybe sixty to 50, seventy feet above the ground or so. Uh, and with wooden roofs built um, on top. I hope to speak in a future episode about Kazan's uh, fortifications and weapons, so I do uh, plan to talk about that. So the Kazan Kremlin, there's a lot there. It's actually a UNESCO heritage um, site, and it has been since November 2000. November 2000. 
And the tombs of some of Kazan, Kazan's past Khans are visible. So, for example, Mahmud Khan, he died in 1462. Uh, Muhammad Amin Khan, who uh, ruled from 1468 to 1518. So the, the tombs of these two Khans is visible. You can kind of see them from above in a glass enclosure. So that's, that was really neat. Uh, within the Kazan Kremlin, there is the modern government of the Republic of Tatarstan. The, the governmental buildings are also housed here, which is known as the Presidential Palace. And it's actually very close to the previously mentioned tombs of Kazans, of the, of the Khans. You could probably walk like maybe two minutes or so, and you'd be at the modern Presidential Palace. So the one of the biggest landmarks of the Kazan Kremlin and Kazan itself is the Kol Sharif Mosque, and it was a it was a um, reproduction of of the one that was destroyed when Ivan the Terrible conquered Kazan in 1552, and it was ordered by the pres the in uh, November on November 13th 1995 uh, by the current by the president of Tatarstan at the time, Amshaj Shamiev. And uh, so it was built from 1996 to 2005, which actually turned out to be the 1,000-year anniversary of, uh, of Kazan. And so it's, it's actually a really beautiful mosque. It's one of, one of Europe's largest mosques. And it was, um, it's named after Kol Sharif, which, who was the last heroic imam of, of Kazan. So it's a very beautiful building. Uh, like, you know, I can't really describe it very well. You'd have to look up pictures of the Cold Sharif Mosque. Um, basically, a very, very nice blue uh, roofing and a bunch of um, bunch of uh, towers on the outside, and it's very beautiful on the inside as well. So what's very interesting about Kazan is it's as, it's a uh, the Islamic culture in the city. And I found it to be a very interesting mix of European, Russian, and Islamic culture. It's kind of, it's been seen as uh, kind of between the East and the West. Um, and because you have the Islamic culture, you have the mosques, you have the Kol Sharif Mosque, for example, that I just talked about. And you also go into the metro or the subway system, and there's a lot of artwork showing Muslim culture and, and imagery. Yet the Russian Orthodox Church is still very visible. Uh, there are also Christian churches uh, within the walls of the Kazan Kremlin. And also you can see this especially on the island of uh, Sviyashk, which was a, uh, an island that was developed just before Ivan the Terrible took over, uh, took over Kazan. It's a nearby, nearby island. And, um, and it's mostly, mostly churches uh, on that site. And so when you were in Kazan, you still knew that you were in Russia, but it was it was somehow it had a different ambiance or feel to it. Kind of seeing uh, Muslim Khans, seeing that kind of artwork, it, it was different from what you would see in Moscow or St. Petersburg, which definitely has a very European Russian feel to it. And there are a few good walks in Kazan too. So one of the most famous ones is Bauman Street. It This is a a long street for for pedestrians and so there's lots of shops and uh, a church and along the way and uh, this street is about two kilometers long and you can start at a 
uh, near where the the Colza, uh shopping center or Ring shopping center, and uh, there's a, the Bauman Street clock. And then you kind of go down about two kilometers, and then at the end you see the Kazanka River and the Kazan Kremlin. And uh, and it goes back to the Kazan Khanat period when it was known as Nogaya Nogaiskaya Street, um, around and around that time. And it became a, a major street in the centuries after the Russian conquest of the mid-16th century. And so, as I say, you can see you can see a church, you can see lots, a fair amount of bookstores, you can see uh, lots of uh, lots of restaurants as well. It's a it's a nice nice little street. And you can see some monuments there. For example, a replica of Catherine the Great's uh, carriage, and also the previously mentioned Kazan cat. Uh, and on the waterfront of the Kama River, just north of the Kazan Kremlin, there was a... I, I didn't get the name of this of this walk, but there was a lot of fancy open-air um, open restaurants, and there were some, some fancy buildings along that edge, too. It was very bright and very modern-looking. Uh, didn't check them out, but it was it was cool to walk along them. They, they did look expensive, <laughs> in any case. Um... And also, there was one building that really struck out for me, too. Of course, there's the Kremlin, but there's also Tatarstan's Ministry of Farms and Agriculture. It's a very fancy-looking building with a big sculpture of a, a huge tree in front, kind of like the, the tree of Gondor, <laughs> you know? It's a, it was very interesting. And, um, and you know, it was, it was very, very fancy. A lot of, a lot of uh, government buildings are kind of bland or whatever, but this one was like, whew, this was a, this was a work of art, this one. And so, and also, as again for food, I've talked about uh, chebureki, but I'm, I don't think, no, I didn't have chebureki in uh, Kazan itself. I had it in Moscow and Ufa, but, uh, but also I did go to a, a kind of a fast food restaurant, and um, I, I speak Russian, I don't speak uh, Tatar, but uh, I'll try my best. Kistibuler. Uh, so, and one of the foods that I I tried there, it was something called a kistabu. And uh, it was, it's an ancient food, and it's kind of like a wrap that's cooked on a pan. Much, much like, a, much like a, a cooked burrito. And boy, it had like fried onions in it, mashed potatoes, and kind of a, a creamy sauce. Uh, I don't know the ingredients to that sauce, but it was, it was a really good taste. Just like chibareki, it was, it was a wrap of Boy, and it, it was interesting. It was black, actually, so it had a black color to it. Um, in a, and of course, I keep referring these, deferring these to the future. But, um, but you know, I do hope to do another episode about uh, Russian foods and also talk about uh, maybe Tatar foods as well. So, um, but yeah, so I can do a little bit more detail on the ingredients and and uh, history of the foods and stuff like that. So that those were some of my impressions of Kazan. I really enjoyed it. Um, I mostly spent my time around the Kremlin uh, because there were a few museums as well within the Kremlin as well that I was um, and I I went to the inside the Kolchev Mosque twice. Once on the lower level, kind of the main area and where you can walk in, and also into the area where where worshippers would 
would would gather um, in in the mosque, and this was this was this area was open to tourists at that time. And there was like a little museum in, in there as well. Um, so I mostly spent my time, like I say, around the uh, Kremlin. And one day I went with two friends as well to the Shviazhk Island, which I just mentioned, and um, I'll be doing a little episode on that island as well. Um, so Kazan, yeah, it was. I found it was uh, quite a, it was a fairly clean city. I found. Uh, it was the the weather was good when I was there. Um, uh, the fan zone for the FIFA World Cup was good. Um, yeah, I found it was a very very nice uh, very nice city. And and the culturally it was it was it was interesting. It was it was still Russia, but it was different. It was different from the other Russian cities I'd been to in in many ways, except maybe from Ufa. The both Ufa and Kazan had that Russian Muslim um, culture that you could see, and so that was. Um, that was that was quite quite nice and quite interesting, but uh, it definitely it definitely had a different flavor, as I said, from Moscow and um, Saint Petersburg, which most tourists going to Russia would be familiar with. So I suppose that would be a good time to end this podcast episode. Um, so I want to thank you very much for for listening, and we will be diving into some of these. I just wanted to give a little bit of an intro to to the city, talk a little bit about Tatarstan's economy, where how Tat Kazan and Tatarstan are now, um, and also uh, you know give a little bit of my impressions, talk about Tatar Islam. And um, so I just wanted to start with that. And of course, as we go through, we will go into more details. So I'll be telling more about those uh, about those stories. So in the next um, episode, I plan to go over the origins of Tatar, the Tatar people and uh, kind of leading up to the creation of the Kazan Khanate and then eventually Ivan the Terrible's conquest of the Kazan Khanate in 1552. So with that, I will be signing off and I will be playing a clip from a Tatar uh, pop song artist, uh, Guzel Uruzova, and uh, be playing a clip uh, from her song, Kilchi Kirchi, which apparently, uh, according to Yandex Translate, is uh, a carpet. So it looks like the music video talks about fishing and stuff. So if you know Tatar, uh, feel free to... Uh, uh, send me a message or something about it and maybe <laughs> see uh, maybe you could tell me what this means uh, but uh, anyway I like the song uh, it's a quite uh, fun little music video as well so if you want to check out Guzel uh, Urozova uh, that is you can look her up on YouTube as well and uh, so the music is quite catchy and you also get to hear a little bit of the Tatar language and you will see even if the language is written in Cyrillic, it does not mean it's Russian. It, this language is very different from Russian, so you will hear that as we go out. So anyway, that's enough of me blabbering off, and uh, we will talk to you later, and we will see you in the next episode. All right, thanks for listening. Have a good one.